The sermon text this morning is from the book of Genesis, chapter 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Shadolomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goam, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboam, and king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddam, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Shadolomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim and Zuzim in Ham, the MMM. <laughs> I always get these passages. <clears throat> and now I've lost my place. In Shaveh Kiriatham and the Horites in their, in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. <clears throat> then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddam with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goam, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddam was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. <clears throat> when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. <coughs> And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and people. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, 
possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Well, I think we ought to pause for just a moment and just respect Kimmy for getting through those verses. <laughs> I wasn't about to get up here and read them, I'll tell you that. Wow, Kimmy, you do get stuck. I think you got Genesis 5, too, with all those people that died. Yeah. Well, I guess the word got out late. I said you could start in verse 9. Sorry. That might have been our miscue on that one, sorry. Considered probably one of the greatest um, rescues, at least in the U.S. military history, uh, was made to a movie called The Great Raid. Um, it was on a Philippine island, Cabinou Tuan, and there were 500 U.S. soldiers held by the Japanese. A <clears throat> hundred rangers and 200 Filipino guerrillas marched 30 miles behind enemy lines. And at night, they had a P-61, this fighter flyover to distract the guards, and they attacked, and they killed all the Japanese guards and freed all the American POWs. These were POWs who had been forced on the Bataan Death March malnourished, beaten, tortured, and they were brought to safety. It's an incredible story of rescue. It's kind of what we see here in our passage today. Let me just remind you, if you haven't been here in the past few weeks, we have back, we're back in Genesis 12, God calls, God's not finished with us. As Ray prayed correctly, we are broken people, and yet, and yet God is kind. And so he calls Abraham, Abram from Ur, and he gives him promises. He says that through you, the nations will be blessed. And Abram believes, and he begins this journey, not knowing where he will go. And so he, he travels to the promised land by faith. And then we see following this great move of faith, what happens is he falters, a catastrophic failure in Egypt when he turns to his own human scheming to protect himself, saying that his wife is his sister. It was a failure, and yet God delivered him. And then we see following that that Abram learns. He moves back to the land of promise. And there he and Lot, with their great resources, could not occupy the same land. And yet Abram steps back and says, if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. In other words, he's going to entrust himself fully to God. And he does. We don't know how long chapter 14 follows chapter 13. We do know that they had separated. And it was long enough that Lot, who had pitched his tent near Sodom, is now living in Sodom. So we know that some time had passed. And we start to hear the stirrings of war, that drumbeat of war. This is the first recorded war in all of Scripture. And what we're going to see here is Abram 
finds himself in two battles. One battle is a physical battle, rescuing Lot, and there's another battle that he'll face. It's a spiritual battle when he comes out of the success of rescuing Lot. And it's a battle of will he turn back to his ways of scheming or will he walk by faith? And so we'll look at this in two passages or two ways. One to 16 will be this physical rescue of Lot and, and then 17 to 24 will be the spiritual battle. So first, uh, and I, I, don't, I don't, oftentimes in the Old Testament, we look at the characters and we try to turn them into examples for us to follow. Uh, let me just encourage you, we're going to look through Abraham. We're not going to just try to mimic Abram. We're going to look through him to see what God might be speaking to us. And, and really what we find in this passage is that just as he was in conflict and war, so do we exist in the wilderness outside of God's presence. We exist in the same kind of context and we need the same kind of saving work uh, that he needed. So look with me first at this first battle. And that is that you're going to find in the first 16 verses. Notice, if you will, as, as Kimmy read those first 12 verses, really there's no dialogue at all. It's just a, a, it's a kind of an itinerary of war. Kedileam or was the king of Iran, or the king of Elam is the king of Iran. These were four powerful kings to the east. They were called suzerain kings because they had, they were kind of city-states, but they were powerful city-states. And what they would do is they would dominate these vassal kings. A vassal king is a lesser king, it's a petty king. And that's the kings that are mentioned here that are in what would be now modern-day Israel. And so these four powerful kings were demanding tribute. So these vassal kings, for the powerful king's protection, they would have to pay him money, they would have to pay them in goods and livestock and food, and so they exacted tribute for, for 12 years. So these kings to the east, Iran, Iraq, all the way to the Black Sea and Turkey, these four kings exacting tribute on these lesser kings. And they did that for 12 years. In the 13th year, they said that enough is enough. We're not going to pay anymore. And they formed this coalition. Well, when they refused to pay tribute, then these four northern kings came down what's called the King's Highway. They came down south. They, were, they destroyed the Canaanite kings in verses 5 to 7. And then they went down to the Dead Sea, the plains around the Dead Sea. And that's where you see those five kings of which Sodom and Gomorrah are included. And they destroyed them decisively. You see that men fell in battle. They fell in these tar pits or really asphalt pits. Some fled to the hills, but they destroyed them decisively. They plundered their cities. <clears throat> they took everything they had and they took all the people as slaves and they began to return to their own land. But notice in verse 12, there's that little detail added. It says, and Lot was captured. Lot was taken in all of his goods. That's really significant. You know, the, the irony that you don't want to miss is that here Lot went after Sodom. He went after the financial security. He went after material wealth. And within a few years, what does he end up with? <clears throat> he goes from freedom to a prisoner. He goes from wealthy to poverty. All of his goods taken. So what happens? Well, of course, a man escapes the battle, and he comes to Abram, who's probably 20 miles away at the Oaks of Mamre. 
and he tells them about all that's happened, that Sodom has been destroyed, and that Lot has been taken. Well, what does Abram do? Well, Abram takes his 318 trained men. These were men in his home that were trained. They knew how to handle a sword, a spear. They knew how to attack. They knew how to defend. But notice in the text, it says that they were raised in his home. These weren't hired soldiers that you'll see throughout scripture. Hired soldiers are never as dependable. They're only in it for the buck. If their life is on the line, they may, they may run. These were raised in his home. They knew Abraham. They had been cared for by Abraham. They were dependable. And so these 318 men, along with Mamre and Eshcol and Honor, these were three Amorites that had made a pact with, that's why it says they were allied with Abram. I, I don't know, maybe they had come to faith in Yahweh, but they had made a covenant. Maybe it was a Middle Eastern covenant of, of one of protection. But they all marched, it says, as far as Dan. Dan was the most northern tribe of Israel. So they marched as much as 100 miles. And they came upon these four kings. And at night, here, Abram, the shepherd, moves to Abram, the military strategist. And he splits his troops. He waits till the cover of darkness and then attacks. It's a surprise attack. Uh, who else are you reminded of? It was Gideon. Gideon took his, his, uh, a page out of Abram's playbook, right? When he split his troops and he attacked the Midianites at night and destroyed thousands upon thousands. How could such a lesser force destroy such a greater force? Well, I mean, there are some tactical and logistical benefits that he had at night. They hadn't seen an enemy for 100 miles. Their guard was down, may not have posted guards at the camp, probably drunk, probably sleeping, enjoying all the plunder that they've had. And at night in a, in a field of battle with no light, you don't know who is the enemy, who is a friend. You're just defending yourself. That's what happened to the Midianites. They turn on each other and they end up killing each other. But at the end of the day, we know that this was a battle of the Lord. Uh, the Lord had promised to Abram that you will have descendants and that, and that all the nations will be blessed through you. So, so he knew that this would be a victory given to him because of the promise of God. Uh, so you see Abram here bring back Lot, bring back the possessions, bring back the people. So what do we see here in these 16 verses? Well, I think all of us here are at least instructed in terms of what is faith in God? You know, we often think of faith as, well, I know about God. There's a knowledge I have about God. Or faith could be opinions about God. Or faith may be in our minds, these subjective feelings that when we talk about God or we hear a miracle, our kind of hair stands up. What faith in God, in Abram, is moving in light of the promises of God. God had promised him he would have a descendant, and his descendant, this seed of Abram, would be a blessing to the world. He had no descendant at this point, so he knew that God would protect him, and he moved in spite of the threat because he trusted God to save him. It's kind of like that famous line from Jim Elliot. He says, I'm immortal until God is finished with me. He's trusting in the promises of God. So what faith is, is it's taking God in his word as true. And if he says that I don't need to worry about what I'm going to eat or drink or wear, because your heavenly father knows you need these things, then we trust him. 
Now, does that mean we don't fall into worry? But then we go back to the reality. No, God says he will care for me. Or he'll never leave me nor forsake me. Even though I may feel alone, uniquely alone, I go back to his word. I, in other words, faith is I'm listening to God more than I'm listening to myself speak about the events of my life. There's this faith that he responded to. You see the faith by going into harm's way. We don't do altar calls here, as many of you have been raised with. I think altar calls are, are often, they can, they can kind of breed a decisionism or emotionalism, but I do call you to faith every week. I'm calling you to faith right now. If you're a Christian, uh, I'm calling you to faith, reminding you, whatever you're facing this week that's causing you trouble or fear, that what does God say to you in the word that you can cling to and respond to? It doesn't mean that you don't involve yourself in some response, but are you trusting in God and his promises? So I think we see faith in God, but I also think you see in this text an intimacy with God. What do I mean by that? Well, notice here we have this geopolitical war. This is an international conflict. Many nations are being involved. And yet verse 12 tells us, and Lot was taken. Here, here God's dealing with nations, but he knows, he knows the plight of one man. He's aware of that. And we often think, well, our world's so big and our problems are so great, God's just very busy with the border crises, the Ukraine war, or the tensions in, in, in Asia. And we have all these big issues, and we think God doesn't even know what I'm going through. And yet he says, and Lot was taken. You know, God is intimately acquainted with our ways. Uh, the insignificant things to us are not to him. You may be worried or concerned about something that no one else knows about, but God knows. I mean, that's what we see here. I mean, God deals with peoples, but he does deal with person, lot, or you. You know, I was thinking about this. I was reminded, David, Psalm 56, where he says, I have counted your tossings. I have stored your tears in a bottle. I've kept record of them. You know that the tossings that we go through when you wake up at one o'clock in the morning, you can't sleep, you're worried about the next day, you're worried about a child, you're worried about your job, and, and you, you roll over on one side, and you try to sleep, and you can't, you're wide awake, and then you turn over again, and then you toss back to the other side, and then you toss back. To, he counts those. I, I mean, it's trying to show us that God is intimately acquainted with our struggles, or our tears, the tears that we shed over the sorrow, the sadness that we face the loneliness that you face, or the unmet expectations that you thought you'd have. I thought my life would be this way, and it's not. You've wept over that, and yet he stores them in a bottle. He keeps record of them. There's an intimacy. You know, so often we think of God as great and sovereign, and I never want to lose that picture of God, but I do, I do want to bring with that an intimacy that we can draw near to him, and he draws near to us. That he knows the number of hairs on our head. He's appointed days for us. Not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from his will. How much more important are you? The intimate of God knowing. I don't know what's in your mind right now in terms of what you're concerned over, but there's an intimacy here that we find, even in the midst 
of this great difficulty of Lot being a prisoner of war, and yet he knows, and he's aware. I, I just want to encourage you, turn to God in these moments. Appeal to him. Ask him to bring deliverance. Ask him to bring peace to your soul. But he is approachable. He's intimate with your ways. But I also want you to see not just faith in God and intimacy with God, you see salvation with God. I mean, do you not with Abram? I mean, Abram marshals his 318 men and his friends, and they go after there. And just for a minute, think with me on Lot. I mean, we'll get to Lot being a righteous man. That's what First Peter speaks about. But, but let me tell you, Lot's something else right now. I mean, Lot did want to go to Sodom, and, and, and he did want to separate himself from the promises of Abram. Lot did make these choices. Uh, Abram could have said, you know what? He made his bed, let him lie in it. I mean, he did his own thing. He got what he wanted. Now he's not happy. Now he wants to make a change. You don't see that with Abram. You see a graciousness, a kindness. He puts himself in harm's way. He immediately marshals all these troops that he has. He risks everything, and he goes after Lot to save him. One man he goes after. Now, many profited, but he went after one. One that had turned away from him. One that had been selfish before him. Do you see the graciousness of Abram saving Lot who can't save himself? In this way, Abram's kind of a type of Christ. Theologians use the word type. A type is like predictive prophecy. You, you can see in an Old Testament story something that will come to fuller picture in the New Testament. So like the sacrificing of a lamb, protecting the people of Israel and Egypt. And then you see Jesus saying, I'm the Lamb of God's, you know, that, that he has been sent to save the world. So, so you kind of, and, and with Abram, you kind of see Jesus, you know, Jesus coming down out of heaven to save a people who are captured, are captured by our own passions, by our own sins. We've turned away like sheep, gone our own way. And yet Jesus comes. He, he doesn't sit in heaven and say, well, you know what? They made their bed. He doesn't throw his hands up in frustration, but he comes after to save. He pursues. And whereas Abram risked everything, Jesus gave everything, right? He gave his life. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel, that he came to save us. So you kind of see in, in this valor of Abram a much greater picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us. This is what it means to be a Christian, that we turn to faith in this one who has come to save, that we recognize we couldn't save ourselves. Do we realize that? I mean, those of you who are a Christian, before the Spirit of God opened your eyes, you realize you could never have come to him on your own. You wouldn't have discovered him. You wouldn't have fallen so far that you find, no, 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 somebody had to bring that prodigal son who came to his senses, God brought him to his senses. God opened his eyes. Do you rejoice over the gospel? If you know the gospel and you know the saving grace of God in Christ, do you give him thanks for that? And for those of you struggling, you feel distant from God, you feel apart and alone, uh, do you see that God has sent one to save? Don't neglect the mercy of God in providing one such as Christ. So we see in Abram here kind of a, a savior, a portrait of a savior to come. And let me, let me read to you what Spurgeon wrote when he preached on this passage. He said, what a splendid type is Abram. 
in the narrative before us of our Lord Jesus Christ, let us read the story of Abram in connection with our Savior and see how full of meaning it is. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in the abundance of his love, had taken us to be his brothers, but we, through our sin, had moved into the land of Sodom. And Jesus Christ dwelt alone in his safety and in his happiness, enjoying the presence of God. The hosts of our enemies, with terrible force and cruel fury, carried us away as captives. We were violently borne away with all the goods which we possessed into a land of forgetfulness and captivity forever. Christ, who had lost nothing by this, nevertheless, being a brother born for adversity, pursued our haughty foes. He overtook them, he smote them with his mighty hand. He took their spoil and returned with crimson clothing, leading captivity captive. He restored that which he took, not away. And so the Lord Jesus has driven our enemies like chaff over to the wind, for they fled at the presence of Jehovah Jesus, and by the valor of the atoning lamb, they have been utterly broken in pieces forever. This is what we have. We have a picture of the gospel to come. Rejoice over such, such mercy. So that's what we see in these 16 verses, the rescue. But, but, but that's the first battle, but there's a bigger battle ahead. You think the battle's behind. No, actually the bigger battle's ahead. What's Abram gonna do? He now has peoples. He now has wealth. He's now the king of the land, if you will. All the nations that were destroyed from those four eastern kings, they're all looking at Abram. He's our rescuer, he's our deliverer. Is this a way that God meant to bring him into a land with peoples and a blessing to the nations? Maybe this is it. Maybe this is now I can sit back and enjoy. This is a big test for Abram. Will he kick back into his human scheming? Or will he continue to trust that God will be his provider? Through himself, he'll bring a seed that will bless the nations. It's the test. And you see that test in the Valley of Kings. In, um, in verse 17 and 18, you see that Abram's approached by two kings, the king of Salem or Jerusalem, right? The king of Salem named Melchizedek and the king of Sodom. They both come to him. Now I want you to see, just as we learned about the contrast between Abram and Lot last week, you're gonna see a huge contrast between the king of Salem and the king of Sodom. Let's look at the king of Salem first. His name's Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. He's a king, but you notice also he's a priest. He's a priest of Salem. Now he comes to Abram with two things. He comes with a banquet and he comes with a blessing. Uh, the banquet is with food and wine. Now listen, this is not just they're hungry and they're traveling. Uh, Abram had all the plunder that he needed to eat. No, this is an act of worship. He's coming with bread and wine to celebrate what God has done. And you see that. Now, now he's a Canaanite king, but he's a king of righteousness. He's a godly king. He knows, he knows God. And you see this as he blesses Abram. Look with me at 21, or excuse me, 19 to 20. He says, and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, 
possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, blessed be God most high, that's El Elyon. He's, he's the God over all gods. He's ruler over all things. He possesses all things. So here's a Canaanite king who knows God and he blesses Abram. But notice how he blesses him. He not only recognizes God as the victor in the battle, but, but he is saying, he, he in a way is confirming to Abram the promise back in chapter 12. Remember back in chapter 12, God said that through you the nations will be blessed. Here the nations are being blessed by the deliverance brought by Abram. So he's confirming to Abram He's reminding Abraham, trust in the promises. They're coming through. I am giving testimony that God is blessing you and the nations will be blessed through you. This is the importance of Abraham. Now look with me at the king of Sodom. Notice how he approaches Abram. In 21, he says, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. He comes with no thanks. He comes with no gratitude. He comes with demands. He, give me the persons, you keep the plunder. Now, don't think he's being generous here. Really, Abram had everything. To the victor belonged the spoils. He was the victor. He had the people and the plunder. The king of Sodom has no faith in God. He has no trust in the promises. He has no desired relationship with Abram. He doesn't want to be part of the promises of Abram. He's trying to get credit for giving him the plunder, making him wealthy. And look what Abram says. Abram said, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. Now he introduces the name Yahweh there. So Yahweh, he now has given the name of God to us, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that's yours, lest you say, I've made Abram rich. I'll take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of men who went with me. Let Honor, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. So you see him reject the offer of king of Sodom. Now, what the narrator wants us to see is Abram has a choice. He can go the way of Sodom. He can go the way of the physical, the temporal, the pleasurable, the material, the financial, or he can go the way of Salem. King of Salem, which is a way of faith, entrusting himself to the promises of God. And you notice that he goes the way of Salem because he gives a tenth of all that he gets. Uh, he gives to Melchizedek a tenth of all that he has. Remember now, the literal law hadn't been written. There was no rule for 10%. Abram just gives generously. So when you look at this passage, it really is somewhat of a portrait of what you and I go through every day. It's living by faith or living by sight. And we're confronted all the time. Each day, tomorrow when you go to work, you're gonna be confronted with, am I gonna trust God or do I need to shade the truth in this, in this difficult office environment? Am I gonna trust in God or am I gonna manipulate a story to make myself look better? We're constantly faced with this issue. Am I gonna trust in the promises of God to be my provider, to be my protector, to, the, to be the one that would promote me? Or do I look at the machinery or the manipulation or the engineering that I can do? And you're gonna be confronted with that 50 times tomorrow. The way you tell a story, the way you consider a situation, the way you approach another person. Will I commit my way to God by faith, entrusting myself entirely to him? Even with your parenting, even in your marriage, 
We're called to live by faith, and that's what we're learning through this life of Abram. But not just that, notice the generosity of Abram. You know, he gives 10%. He doesn't do it under compulsion. He's not doing it by law. He's not doing it because he has to. He's not doing it because he wants further blessings from God. He just does it out of the gratitude of his heart. That's the way we give, not just money, but of ourselves, our time, our schedule, serving other people. You just see this, this kind of this knee-jerk gratitude. God, you have done it all. Of course I want to respond to that with this offering or this tithe to Melchizedek. So this is what we have in the story of Abram. You have this, you have this two battles, right? There's the physical battle. Will he trust in God and the physical things of life? And you have the spiritual battle. And you see that in both cases, he walks by faith. We're seeing Abram grow. One author said it this way, the veil is being lifted. We see Abram in his true colors, acting as a king of the land that is his by right and that will be inherited by his offspring. We're starting to see Abram grow and becoming the man that God will make him to be. But, but let me take you a step further. When you think of this Melchizedek, I just want to kind of, this is an excursus, if you will. What do we do with Melchizedek? He's kind of a shadowy figure. He appears on the scene for three verses in Genesis 14, and we don't see him again for a thousand years. Then we, we, we hear about him through the pen of David in Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And then we don't see him again for another thousand years until Hebrews chapter 5 and chapter 7. What do we make of this man? We don't know much about him, definitely from Genesis. But, but I want to try to explain this king of righteousness because David speaks to it. Now remember, Melchizedek was a king in Jerusalem. The next time he's spoken about uh, is from the new king in Jerusalem. David's the first Israelite king to take the throne that Melchizedek had taken. So in Psalm 110, he writes, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So David's writing, the Lord, that would be Yahweh, the Lord said to my Lord, that would be Adonai, sit at my right hand. So David sees that a king is coming that will come from him, but will be greater than him. So the Lord says to my Lord, he says, until I make your enemies your footstool, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what I want you to see is David knew that a king would be coming, who would be a king, who would come from him, but he would also be a priest. Now this immediately causes us to scratch our heads. Why? Because in Jewish law, a king could be a prophet. A king could prophesy. David was such. He was both a king and a prophet. A priest. A priest could also be a prophet. Ezra. Ezra was a priest, but he was also a prophet. But a king could never be a priest. Those two roles are never commingled in Scripture. But, but here you see David saying, this is a new order of king. It will come from me, but will be different from me. He, he won't be subject to me. I'll be subject to him. So that's all we see in this story of Melchizedek from Psalm 110. We just know that another king is coming. This king will follow David, but he'll be a king and a priest. So then we get to Hebrews. Hebrews is a lens through which we understand Psalm 110. And let me read for you Hebrews 7, 1 to 4. 
He says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abram, Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. So Melchizedek is not some theophany or Christophany. It's not Christ himself because he was only resembling the son of God. But what what the writer of Hebrews, and remember Hebrews is really just a sermon. It's 13 chapters long. It's just a sermon on helping the saints persevere through trials and suffering. They wanted to go back to worship in the old ways and he's saying, don't abandon Christ, he's supreme. He's greater than Moses, he's greater than the angels. Look, he is the fulfillment of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is a type preparing us. So back in Genesis 14, you have Moses preparing a people to see that this Melchizedek, this shadowy figure, who's both a king and a priest, is spoken about by the next king of Jerusalem, David, who will be fulfilled by the next king, a thousand years, Jesus, the king of Israel. Jesus, you know, now Melchizedek, we hear nothing of his mother and father. And Jesus was one who is uniquely born by the Spirit. Uh, you hear nothing of Melchizedek's birth or death. And Jesus has no end to his days. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that promise back, that, that promise of one to come who will be both king and priest has come to us and he's Christ. What does this mean for us? It means that we can worship Christ now as the, as the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. That he is, he is the king of righteousness. He has come to live in righteousness. So you and I can rest in his righteousness for us. His kingdom will be right. He's going to be a, a king who brings peace. Peace to our souls. Peace to our relationship with God. He is a king who will achieve this peace by being a priest. He's not going to be offering a sacrifice for us, he is the sacrifice. This means that no matter the sins that we have committed, we can go to him and seek forgiveness and enjoy. He's not giving us forgiveness by proxy, he's earning the forgiveness by being the sacrifice himself. That's why Jesus was able to forgive in his ministry. Your sins are forgiven, he said to the paralytic. They said, how can he forgive sins? Well, he would be the one that would earn the forgiveness. So here you see all the way back in Genesis 14, you, you, you have this redemptive story that God means to save, and he's going to save us from the conflicts, the wars, the troubles that we have. He's gonna save us through one like Melchizedek, but greater. He is both king and priest to whom we can submit that we can run to, that we can appeal to you. Uh, too many times have I heard over the years of ministry, I'm not worthy to come to him. Too many times I've heard that. I, I, I could never go back to him. But he's the one that you go back to over and over. He, he won't turn you away. Intimate with your ways. Acquainted with everything you think and have done. 
And yet he's the priest king to save and bring us to a father. So friends, I know that there are many things going on right now in your world. And many of the things I, there's no way, I don't have the words to fix or to change. But I do have one here who is king with all power. And yet he's a priest who can forgive. And he can be appealed to. Come to me, he says. All you who are heavy laden and burdened, come to me. And what does he say? I'll give you rest. I'll give rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm humble and gentle of heart. He's approachable, intimate. Let's ask him for grace now. Just Let's take a moment and bow our heads and consider the, the glory of God in the face of Christ as we see in this text. And I'll pray for us in a moment. And, and I, I do pray that you would, by the Spirit of God, I'll be trusting that you'll either going to be convicted or comforted. And then I'll pray for us.